0: Good morning. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 15, Psalm chapter 15. They're singing about seeing Jesus. I can't wait. I hope you can't either. In the meantime, we're with each other and we're in this world. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to be able to look forward to worshiping God in his presence to be sure, but it's also a necessary thing to worship God now. You know, every once in a while, you'll hear pastors, say, from the pulpit, you'll hear one of us, uh, say, from a, a class or, or, or the pulpit, if your heart is prepared for worship, then you know, whatever. What does that mean? Does it mean listening to Christian music on the way? <laughs> you know, like driving my van uh, with my family and, and having some Christian music there? Uh, does it mean maybe getting early, getting up early to have your devotions? And to think about God, maybe intentionally, Uh, what does it mean? Does it mean that, you know, if we even get here in the auditorium and just kind of have a a, a few moments to be settled to kind of, you know, get our minds in the right place? What does it mean for our hearts to be prepared for worship? Maybe it relates to how we treat the waitress after we're done with church today and we go get a meal when our food isn't cooked right and when the service is slow. Maybe it's in relationship to how we respond when our spouse or our children or our coworkers don't do what we expected them to do. Maybe it's in relationship to the business quote that we gave someone that we now have to up a couple thousand dollars, but we have a decision as to whether to inform them. Maybe it has to do with being made aware of a brother or sister in Christ that has a financial need especially coming into thanksgiving and having the means to do it but then maybe wrestling with what that would look like for us. Psalm chapter 15 talks about a heart that's prepared for worship but the word worship doesn't show up at all in the ver- in the chapter. In fact, if you look in Psalm 15, it's only 5 verses, it's very short, but it's a psalm that addresses that question. What does it mean to have a heart that's prepared for worship? And what I want to leave with you today, and really the principle I want to leave with you today is this. Your heart prepared for worship is a combination of personal reflection and public testimony. Your heart, when it's prepared for worship, it's a combination of personal reflection and public testimony. So if you're there in Psalm chapter 15, let's start, and we'll read the whole chapter. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money and interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things... Will never be shaken. So, having your heart, like I said, is prepared. Is uh, having your heart prepared for worship is a combination of personal reflection and public testimony. And so, we see both of those things in this chapter, and we see it addressed to an Old Testament audience. David is the author, King David. And this chapter would have been read as the nation of Israel, Israelites, would have been approaching the tabernacle or the temple as they're walking to the place of worship. And many scholars believe that this would have been something that they recited, almost like a catechism. And that first question, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? That would have been the question that would have been announced from the inside of the tabernacle, the inside of the temple. And those who are about to come and to worship... They would respond with verses 2 through 5a, and then you have the promise there at the very end. But we see this question here at the beginning, really a question that introduces this first point. This question of who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill. This is a question that requires personal examination. Really, it asks the question, are you prepared to worship? Are you prepared for worship? Like I said, this is an entrance psalm or an entrance liturgy. And when we talk about who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, without sounding sacrilegious, this wasn't just simply to go see him. I mean, the assumption is those who would be in the holy tent, the tabernacle, the holy hill, Zion, would be coming to be in the presence of God and to worship him. That's what we're going to do. That's what we just heard in song. That's what you are saying about. Here in our weakness, we find ourselves falling before your throne, you just saying. This is an anticipation of coming before God. And not just coming before God so that we can get, but coming before God so that we can give. In the Old Testament context, God's presence was especially pronounced in the tabernacle and more permanently the temple. And in our day and age, we don't think of God being in one place. I mean, we didn't think of walking into this room and having an Ark of the Covenant and two veils and, and, you know, priests and such. But when we think of worship, we think of coming before God. And we think of corporate worship, we think of coming before God together. Now, this question, when asked, again, thinking back to an Old Testament context, The answer that would have come to their brains probably wouldn't have been in verses 2 through 5. Because the answers that were given in verses 2 through 5 have to do with ethics. The answers that would have come to their brain in verse 1, who may abide in your tent? They would be thinking men with holy garb, Levites, men who were coming with clean hands and pure hearts without any physical blemish, without any defect. And you can read in Leviticus, and you can read in Deuteronomy, some of the ceremonial cleansing that had to have been done in order just to offer a sacrifice. That would have been the qualifications that would have come to mind. And yet chapter 15 doesn't talk about those ceremonial qualifications. They talk about ethical qualifications. But before I go any further, and we're going to talk a bit about verses 2 through 5, but before I go any further, I want to think about these questions that were asked. Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? I want to take a step back and ask the question, why would you want to? I mean, maybe that's really basic, and maybe I shouldn't ask that because, hey, you're all here on a Sunday morning, and you know, why else would you be here, right? But seriously, why would you want to? You know, David, in several other psalms, says some pretty convicting things to me. He says in Psalm 27:4, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. In chapter 61, in verse 4, he says, let me dwell in your tent forever. And in chapter 84, the sons of Korah write this, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and a swallow and a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. you know, can I tell you I have moments where I feel this, but I, I wish I could say that's a continual line of feeling. But it's not. I may have moments, like I said, where I feel this way. I feel this way when I think about heaven. When I'm done with earth and then I'm with God. Yes, then I will enjoy that. But here now? The assumption here in chapter 15 is that we want to be part of a community that worships and when you look at the verbiage "O Lord who may abide in your tent, who may dwell in your holy hill this isn't just like periodic. I wonder if I wonder if we approach worship at times kind of like, and I know we're close to Thanksgiving so bear with me. What if we approach it kind of like Uncle Stan at Thanksgiving? I don't have an Uncle Stan, okay? So this is purely a hypothetical character. If you're thinking of any family members that belong to me named Uncle Stan, I don't have one. But you may. And here's what I mean. Uncle Stan at Thanksgiving comes, we have Thanksgiving meal, right? We all walk in, everybody's happy to see each other. Uncle Stan comes, and Uncle Stan knows where to go. Uncle Stan walks in, gives the obligatory hugs and greetings, but there's the good chair. Everybody knows where the good chair is. There's couches, right? But then there's the good chair. And Uncle Stan finds the good chair, because, say hey, the bears and the lions are playing, because they always play on Thanksgiving Day. You know, it's a day for football. It's a day for eating. So Uncle Stan comes in, says hello, finds the good chair, just kind of sits, all the wives, others, dutifully getting ready for the meal. Uncle Stan's there. And if you want to talk to Uncle Stan, he's able. He's available. But you've got to bring up the conversation to Uncle Stan. And usually when Uncle Stan talks, he kind of talks about things that he's really not happy with. Kind of things he, he, you know, he wishes were better. Got to have Uncle Stan stuffing. Because, man, it's got to be cooked just so. And when it's presented, is Uncle Stan happy? And so you have this process of family awkwardness. Where the guy comes in having to have things just so, but not really saying it as much. And he eats, and maybe goes and takes a nap. And then when it's time to leave, he goes. Well, everyone has enjoyed one another. Really, Uncle Stan's about Uncle Stan. And when I think about what David says about worship, and in particular, this question, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And why would I want that? There's that part of me that, When we come to the holy tent, we don't come to a physical holy tent, but when we come to worship, I wonder if it isn't because, and when we don't feel this way, it's because we're kind of coming like the Uncle Stan. Were you served today? Were the songs sung the ones that you liked? Was the climate all right? Was the person in front of you not so annoying? Did they smell okay? Okay. Did you get a good parking spot? Did you find the chair that you always sit in? Or did someone have the audacity to come and sit in the chair you're always sitting in, right? (laughs) And I know we kind of chuckle about that, but worship can very easily be like Uncle Stan at Thanksgiving. This is not that. And when we approach worship as one who is a giver, Instead of one who is a consumer, we approach worship in a way that ultimately has God as the object of our worship. When we do the opposite, we'll inevitably be dissatisfied and frankly not be worshiping at all. You know, and this is where just, maybe this is hypersensitive, but I think it's important. Even the verbiage that I use with my my kids when I come home from church, what did you learn today? Is church coming about learning lessons? Is coming to church about just what we got, what I learned? I mean, are any of you going to walk away from Thanksgiving meal on Thursday from your family and think, so what did I get out of that? I mean, that would be kind of a little out of order, whatever, a, little bit, a little bit backwards, like, well, what lessons did I learn? No, that's family. That's, that's, I'm there for something bigger than me. And I know that's a very basic way of looking at it, but when we're coming to worship, there is a, a the reality that it's just that, worship. And so having a heart prepared for worship requires personal reflection. Do I want what verse 1 is asking? Do I really want that? But then the second question, we're confronted with the need of a heart that's prepared to enter God's presence and to worship Him, but We're also, in verses 2 through 5, told what that looks like on the outside. And as I mentioned before, this is an answer that an Israelite wouldn't necessarily be expecting. You see, a prepared heart is not only one that is personally reflective, but it's also a heart that lives out its faith the other six days of the week with his or her neighbor. So having a heart prepared for worship, our second point here, is a heart that requires a public testimony. You know, so earlier on we asked that question, are you prepared for worship? I think the question here from the, or the answer from the text is, what is your life like with your neighbor? Is your heart prepared for worship? The answer is, well, what is your life like with your neighbor? And the reason why I use neighbor here is for several reasons. Jesus defined the neighbor quite, that, that term neighbor quite broadly, didn't he? He said, you know, when, when, when he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, they said, you know, you should, um, you know, who is your neighbor? And he, and he gives this extreme example. But ultimately, Jesus summed up the law by saying, you'll love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And in verses 2 through 5, we see this as the answer to verse 1. And in fact, it's, it's really interesting here. Verses 2 through 5 address worship and our behavior with others outside of an exclusive personal relationship. And not just that, but our behavior outside even the place of worship. I mean, look at verse 2. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness speaks truth in his heart. But then verse 3. He who does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. How many of those things relate to other people in your life? Almost all of them. Saying, is your heart prepared for worship? We're necessarily introspective, but that's not all that we can be. Or all that we should be. There is the necessary relationships with others that inform us whether or not our heart is truly prepared for worship. Now in these three verses, I want to point out three different aspects of this public testimony of the person prepared for worship. Three characteristics. First of all, their character is respectable. Their character is respectable. And we see that in verse 2. There are three positively stated traits that move from general to specific, but they are able to be witnessed to by others. You know, the priest that they would have greeted may not be able to answer that, but everyone around him may. And here the worshiper is a person of integrity. They have a genuine, they are genuine and they show spiritual sincerity in their day-to-day lives. You know, there's, there's actually a very general nature of the characteristics of verse 2. So it just talks about the person's body of work as in their life. That they are a person of character. The second characteristic of them is that their words are restrained. Their character is respectable, but their words are restrained. In verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. All three of those are stated negatively, things he doesn't do or she doesn't do. And I use the word restrained because of the fact that they are stated negative. Before I became a pastor, um, I I went to college and I studied to be a teacher. And I did my student teaching in a high school. And uh, the first day of my student teaching, I was brought, uh, my, my cooperating teacher was walking me through and giving me a tour of the high school. And so we're walking through and we're seeing the lunchroom and we're seeing the gym, and we're seeing the room that I'll teach. And, and we walked by and, and he said, uh, my cooperating teacher said, OK, so here's the teacher lunchroom. This is where the teachers eat. And if you want to be a teacher for long, don't eat there. <laughs> okay. I looked at him funny, it's like, he's like, literally, there's nothing good that comes out of what is talked about in the lunchroom. You will grow to hate your kids and hate teaching very quickly. So don't eat there. So for the semester that I was there, I actually ate with the teacher out in the lunchroom with the kids. And I didn't eat there because he told me not to. So I didn't. I was going, well, I'm a student teacher. You know, I gotta obey him. But his point was salient. There was a definition of negativity that just came from the conversation. The worshiper is known for having restraint on his tongue. Even when circumstances would just allow for a lack of restraint. Where when things are bad, things are negative. But the language here is more than just restraining from being a gripe, it's verbal restraint when dealing with real people in real life. It does not slander with his tongue, it doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. He demonstrates or she demonstrates restraint. So you see respectable character, restrained words. But then thirdly, we see rightly oriented values. Rightly oriented values. In verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despi- despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. First of all, he values those who fear the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I see the word describing a, as uh, described as a positive qualification or characteristic that that kind of makes me you know scratch my head like really that's a good thing to despise a reprobate well this word here despise yes it's a strong word but the context points to a value meaning this that there is a value of one who fears the Lord in comparison to a value of the one who does not fear the Lord and in particular in this context it's one who rejects and actively rejects the Lord Here, this word for reprobate, at least in the translation that I'm using, reprobate, that would have been one that would have been in the believing community. Identifying one in the believing community, yet actively resisting the word of the Lord. And being known for that. And so, in turn, this individual values the one who demonstrates a lifestyle that fears the Lord. Not only does he value those who fear the Lord, he values the promises that he makes. Look there at the end of verse 4. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. The oath he makes may cost him something, but oaths work make, worth making, aren't they? Isn't that like... So, you know, if, if you have a business transaction, and, and, you know, that's part of your job making a quote for someone. And then you say, this is what it's going to cost. And then after doing the work, come to find it's going to cost more. Now, if you stick with that quote, using the verbiage here, he swears to his own hurt. That would hurt, I presume. It will cost you something. Marriage vows, those hurt sometimes, don't they? But they're worth keeping. Just even general commitments. Yes, I'll do this. No, I'll not do that. He swears to his own hurt even when it costs him and he does not change. He values the promises he makes. He also values souls over money there at the the beginning of verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. The nature of charging interest And taking a bribe would both be indicative of seeing a dollar as more important than a person in need. Now again, does this say, okay, so any payment of interest is wrong? Well, in this context, in the context of Psalm 15, you have an individual, a person who's part of the believing community, who's asking for a loan. In this particular context, this is someone who would be known. There are other Levitical laws, descriptions of loans to made to those outside the believing community. But here we have someone who is in need. And instead of taking advantage of that person in need, he gives money. He values souls over money. He could take, he could take advantage by charging interest. He could take advantage of that individual by taking a bribe over the innocent, but instead, he values that soul. Now, like I said before, these are individual acts of spiritual maintenance, but they enable a person to come to worship corporately. And so when we're looking at the whole body of work here, we have to come to the conclusion that when we come to worship, and when we come to worship corporately, we come having been prepared to come. Now, you say, no, duh. That's kind of the whole point of your sermon. I understand that, but let's tease that out. If you're going to join a fitness competition, like CrossFit or Tough Mudder or something like that, you don't show up the day of the competition starting to prepare for the competition. If I join a triathlon, I... Better have swam a few laps and run a few miles and rode a few miles on my bike. Else I will perform poorly. I won't survive. Now, purely from the basis of preparing for an athletic adventure or or, or an athletic venture or something like that, we see the point that, yeah, you've got to get ready for it. Well, here as we're reading Psalm 15, coming together for corporate worship is not a therapy session nor is it an addiction recovery ministry where we just come and the church is a hospital and I just bring my junk and I just kind of lay it out there and hey, let's be real. We're going to be real. Nobody, you know, has the plastic smiles on. Nobody, you know, is acting fake here. Hey, we're really real. And I get how a church like that, that model of a church could be very attractional, very attractive. But what is that demand of the worshiper? Whose presence are we coming before? What are we offering to God? And it's at this point that I want to make sure that we strike a biblical balance. Because as we're looking at Psalm 15 here, and we look back one psalm earlier, and we read in verses 1 through 3, and I want us to look here. When we read verses 1 through 3, It says the fool in his heart, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. And what does he arrive at? He arrives, verse 3. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. All right, so Psalm 15, it's this entrance psalm, right? Worshippers are coming up. They're asking, oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And you know what they should anticipate to hear? Not you, buddy. <laughs> Not me. Not according to Psalm 14. And when I look at Psalm 15, certainly don't have a thousand there. So we have to strike this balance between, yes, we we do come prepared to worship, but we're also coming, having been invited to worship. So if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Because if you think that you're having tension with this, At least I do. There are other people who had tension with this as well. This dichotomy of being prepared for worship, yet not being prepared for worship. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, right? So we have the picture here, the high priest. He's appointed of men, but appointed by God to make sacrifices on behalf of sins. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, but also for himself, and no one who takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So you see what's going on? Even the priest who's offering sacrifices in the Old Testament context is offering sacrifices for himself. He's not just offering this stuff up for the people, himself being the only guy that's worthy of doing that. Does that make sense? He's a sinner too. He's wrestling with the tension of Psalm 14, Psalm 15. But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have had the consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, this ongoing process of offering sacrifices for sins year after year after year, and the priest, even the priest, being reminded of his own inadequacy before a holy God to truly worship him. Everybody's reminded of it. There's no one good, not even one. But we see in verse 11, same chapter. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, being Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. (sighs) chapter 14 and chapter 15 of psalms but greeted with hebrews 10 we have someone who's offered that perfect sacrifice let's keep reading verse 15 it goes further and the holy spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, "In their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So what? So I can worship. So I can worship. And back in Psalm... I I want you to keep in Hebrews, okay? Because we're going to look at several more verses. But back in Psalm 15, very end of the chapter... You have all of these ethical characteristics, right? But the very last phrase of Psalm 15, verse 5. He who does these things will never be shaken. Why doesn't he say, he'll never leave? I mean, that's what he says in Psalm 23. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But here he says, I will never be shaken. And when you look at the book of Psalms, you see this word shaken or moved several times in relationship to the The one who fears the Lord, the God-fearer, being in tumultuous, terrible circumstances. Psalm chapter 46. God is a refuge in strength, a very help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not be moved. That word moved, same as the word shaken, even when everything around me is being shaken. In Psalm chapter 10. David writes of the wealthy individual who sees his wealth as the source of his security and says, I will never be shaken until his wealth disappears. What it means, Psalm 16, it's a gladness, it's a rejoicing, it's a security of our position in who we are. And isn't it ironic that when when we come to The corporate worship, looking to get, looking to get, looking for good sermons that can help me fix my marriage or fix my relationships or help me deal with the problems in life or help me solve my addiction or whatever. When we come with that motive, we're missing it. But when we come prepared for worship, do you know what God does? He changes us. He changes us. He says, He who does these things will never be shaken. Meaning the circumstances around me might not change, but I will. But I will. These are the outcomes of those who sojourn in God's tent, who dwell in God's holy hill. But they are not the means to an end. Being with God, worshiping God is the end. And by worshiping with others and enjoying that privilege, we reap the benefit of security and stability. So, going back, almost done. Hebrews chapter 10. The so what of all this? And the author of Hebrews gives us the so what of all of this. Verse 19 Therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus think of that. Confidence by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and again, reading Psalm 15 and understanding this backdrop helps us see that verbiage through different eyes. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think we can take four applications from this passage in relationship to our hearts prepared for worship. First of all, we can come to worship boldly through the blood of Jesus Christ and righteousness of Christ charged to my account, we can come boldly. So when I am asked the question of Psalm 15, verse 1, who may abide, who may dwell? I can. I can. You can. That's a big deal. Like, that's eternal. I can come boldly. Not because of my own righteousness, but because of Christ. I can come genuinely, genuinely. This righteousness is from Christ, and it looks like something. Verse 22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As one theologian states, these characteristics of Psalm 15 are not simply what God finds in you. They are what God creates in you. They are what God creates in you. I can come boldly, I can come genuinely, and I can come together with you. Throughout human history, God has always included a faith community in worship, and He always will. He always will. Let's look at verse 23. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. In the Old Testament, it was corporate worship at the temple and tabernacle. In the New Testament, it's the gathering of the saints with one another on a regular basis. And in the kingdom, the future kingdom, it is God dwelling among his people. The privilege of coming boldly and genuinely is one that others enjoy too. Part of the blessing of these spiritual realities is the opportunity to be with others who've experienced the same thing. Revelation chapter 21 says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's corporate. That's us. So, yes, we may come boldly, yes, we may come genuinely, but we must come with one another. And then finally, we must come often. Verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching near. I think that this aspect of corporate worship really is the natural consequence of the spiritual realities we've discussed. What's true of you in Christ, what's true of one another in Christ? Being made worthy of worship and being invited to worship with others. So, what does this mean? Not forsaking the assembling together. It means that we're spiritually oriented towards the value and the responsibility of worshiping God together. We recognize that value. But it's also a recognition of the inertia that results from honoring God in this way or not honoring God in this way. You say, what's inertia? Well, inertia is like when you're driving your car and you hit the brakes and you keep going forward, right? Things in motion continue to stay in motion. Right? So things slide forward. Here in verse 25, it says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. And as I looked in multiple translations, I looked at this particular word. This word kept coming up. Habit, habit, habit. It's it's a pattern of living. It's a lifestyle. Meaning that coming often is the byproduct of the spiritual realities, but it's also something something that is habitual. Or becomes a habit. And the opposite is also true. And we know that all too well. As long as I can remember, personally, as long as I can remember, I have had the internal bent to not want to come and gather with you. I mean, even as a kid, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were saved, and they got me up early. And I always remember Saturday mornings, I could get up early for cartoons, but Sunday mornings, getting up for church was a different story altogether. No problem with cartoons, big problem with church. And it shouldn't be surprising when we consider who we are theologically or who we are spiritually. There's that sin nature. There's going to be a part of us as Christians that are always resisting wanting to become godly. That's just part of having a sin nature. It's always going to be there. And for us to expect it to somehow just go away, it's a pipe dream. The language of chapter 10 verse 25 speaks of the natural patterns that come from either making God and his people a practical priority or not making God and his people a practical priority. And I see all the more the end of this phrase and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I can see all the more in a lot of other areas of my life. I see home projects, work responsibilities, my kids involvement at school, social opportunities I see them increasing all the more. You know, I don't have to try to increase them all the more. They just do. You know what? I don't even have to make a theological argument in my mind as to why they are increasing and why this can decrease. I mean, really, we don't have to make any compelling argument to cut services if we're just left to our own inertia. We just do. Does that mean that Hebrews 10.25 means you must go? Sunday morning nine AM. You must go. Sunday morning ten fifteen. You must go Sunday evening six o'clock. You must go Wednesday evening, seven o'clock. I don't know. But it means something. All the more means something. And it doesn't mean it simply so that I could check off the list of being approved to God. It's the byproduct of all of the spiritual realities that we've rehearsed this morning. So can I invite you to something? I'm not going to stab you in the back, not trying to be passive aggressive, nothing like that. But can I invite you to something, just as a practical application? When was the last time you celebrated the Lord's Supper? Because tonight we get to. Tonight we get to spend time With our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thinking about the thing we should be most thankful for of all. Jesus and his death. And we get to do it with others who are the beneficiaries of his death as well. And I know all of what goes on in here. But when we're talking about a heart prepared for worship. It's not so much check, check, check. As much as it is God enacting a orientation and a value change in me so that when it comes to the day of worship it's the day of worship when it comes to being able to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ and offer something to the Lord all right, that's my privilege I mean I'm looking forward to it in heaven I don't think anyone has a problem with that but it's all of the all the mores that add up that can come in and clog and distract When in fact, maybe Psalm 15 asks us a question and reorients, recalibrates our values to come into alignment with what God created us to do in the first place. And that is to honor God and be with his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I I certainly trust that the word was clear. Lord, I want it, that's all of it to be. Your word, not mine, not tradition, not religion, not perfectionism, but God, worship in a heart that's prepared to do just that because we love you and because we love one another. And Lord, may our behavior when we leave this building Would it reflect that heart that has been prepared for worship so that we, as it were, carry the residue of being with one another and being under your word so that it touches lives, so that we point others to Christ who may not know Christ, and that we encourage one another to those who are in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. It's in Jesus' name we may. Amen.